Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. And our text will be chapter uh, 14 verses 20 to 25. And um, our, uh, our desire this morning is, I, I intended to cover all of the balance of this chapter because it really is one big theme. Uh, and we call it, and that theme is the educa- our education and edification but, um, of course, once I got into it, I realized that there's actually quite a bit in, in verses 20 to 25 that we need to unpack. So I think we miss a lot of what Paul is getting at <clears throat> by skimming over this in a cursory way. So I just want to read the verses that are before us this morning, 20 to 25, and, um, and then we'll look at those. And next Sunday, we'll pick up 26 to 40. Paul says this, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues... And ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. When I was in seminary, I had a professor... Uh, of New Testament, and he loved to remind us that repetition is the key to learning. And he would say it over and over and over again. Well, he said, what is the key to learning? And we would say, repetition, what's the, repetition is the key to what? Learning. And it would just go round and round and round. It was too, it was like kind of uh, juvenile. But he made uh, this professor was making sense, and I think he was borrowing that idea from the Apostle Paul because Paul tends to go round and round and round again as he writes to the Corinthian church, and that is what he's doing. It's almost like he's coloring in the scantron, you know, that, that, that little circle, so that it is completely dark and there's no part of it that is left left uh, unmarked. And, and that is what is happening in these verses. From 20 to 40, Paul is essentially um, authenticating and reinforcing the things he has already taught us in 1 to 19. In 20 to 40, Paul is going to complete, if you will, our education in edification. Um, and there are two final lessons that we're going to learn, one this Sunday and one next Sunday. One in verses 20 to 25, focuses on the preeminence of the prophetic word in the corporate gathering. And the second, which we'll look at next Sunday, is uh, laying out a procedure for worship. Here, Paul gets very granular on what exactly should be going on and what should not be going on in the church service. But remember, all of this is tempered from chapter 13, where we are called to pursue love, to chase after love. And we saw in verses 1 to 5 that uh, the pursuit of love means prioritizing the prophetic word in the corporate gathering. Like that is what is uppermost. Paul says that is what you must do above all. 
And then we saw last Sunday in verses 6 to 12 that we are to steer away from and and do everything in our power to uh, distance ourselves from that which is unclear and that which is not um, straightforward. And anything that would be unknown, we are to cast that aside. And then, of course, we saw the importance of engaging the mind to edify God's people uh, in, in the church. We pointed out, as Paul does here in chapter 14, verses 13 to 19, that, uh, that without an intelligible, understandable message, um, then no, no one is benefited and no one is built up. And so we must pursue um, edification, building up the body by engaging the mind, which, of course, moves the affections and then compels the will. So, so all of that was what we covered last Sunday. He, his point, though, is singular and that the gifts of the Spirit and particularly the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, which were um, in operation in these earliest decades of the church, he makes known here that they are not playthings that crown you and I individually, personally, with status or privilege, that the gifts are not there to draw uh, awe and attention onto ourselves. That's not their purpose. Um, The spiritual gifts are for the benefit of others. They're for the common good. The, the advantage of those around us, and when they're operating in the proper way and they're, they're manifest in a way that honors God, then God is the one who is lifted up and magnified, not the person who's using that gift. And so, you know, that's basically been the theme of chapters 12, 13, and now the first part of chapter 14. So we're going to break this text down 20 to 25 as following this morning into kind of four sections. First, we're going to see in verse 20 the prohibition against immaturity. It's a warning against immaturity. And then we'll see the principle from the law that Paul lays out in verses 21 and 22. Then we'll see the poverty, the, the, the lack of benefit that comes from tongues. And then lastly, in verses 24 and 25, we'll see the power of the word understood. So that's kind of a road a roadmap for where we are going this morning. And um, our lesson then begins in verse 20 in the pro- with a prohibition against immaturity. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The, the issue, of course, we said all along, is their misuse and abuse of the gift of languages, the gift of tongues, and that betrayed in their midst a thought, thoughtless kind of self-centeredness that was um, obvious, a childish love of attention, and a naivete, an arrogant naivete, that they had everything figured out. Th- that was the issue. In es- th- this is the essence of immaturity. It is a self-focus. The, uh, your needs, your desires, your expectations are what are uppermost when you're immature and the world must orbit around you and what you want. And so moving outside of yourself to prioritize and to prefer and to meet the needs of others, that just does not enter into the equation. And of course, we understand this on a practical level. Um, those of us who have had young children or have young children or just even observe young children we understand that they they don't contribute a lot to the home in the sense of uh, they they need someone to feed them, they need someone to change them, they need somebody to uh, nurse them back to health when they're sick. 
Um, they need someone to entertain them. They need, little children need someone to protect them from danger. They need someone to tell them when to go to sleep. They need someone to tell them when to get up. Um, they have zero capacity to do any of those things for themselves and certainly not for others. And that's just, that's just, na- that's just nature. They're immature. They're young. But even when they can start to uh, do some of those basic things for themselves, they still insist that the world kind of bend itself around them and their desires and uh, their every whim. They, they want to play with a certain toy, watch a certain show, touch something on the shelf at the store, right? Um, and the moment you or someone else comes between them and what they want, watch out because you're going to get it. They'll go around you. They'll go over you. They'll go through you, right? This is what the immature person does. They are, they are self-focused, self-centered. But um, not only that, they, are, they have almost a pathological need for attention, right? The, the, look at me, daddy. Look at me, mommy. Look what I made. Watch me do this. Watch me do that. Now, of course, it's sweet. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's innocent. But it's very what? Self-focused. Look at me. The focus has to be on them. And when they don't have that attention that they want, they find new and fresh ways to secure that attention, sometimes even in a destructive way. There's no consideration for others, no self-denial for the benefit of of mom or dad or, or brother or sister, no willingness to share or shine the spotlight on others. They don't do any of these things. Why? Because because they are immature. But younger children, not only are they self-centered and me monsters, but they're also um, pridefully arrogant. They don't know much, and they don't know what they don't know. And so, again, they think they have it all figured out. Prideful arrogance is a besetting sin with many, many young children. You know, here, let me help you with that. No, I'll do it, you know, right? Or uh, maybe if you let your brother play with that toy instead of walking away from him, he wouldn't try and grab it out of your hand. Like, no, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about, okay? I mean, I think that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy, uh, he warns T- and Titus as well, to urge young men to be sensible. That word sensible is, is an interesting word. It conveys the idea of having a thoughtful awareness of what is best. That is something young men most men don't know very well. They don't know, young people don't know when they need to heed the wisdom of others. They don't know when they need to defer to those who are more experienced. They don't know when someone is just in a better position to make a wise call. This, this is, um, these are the issues of immature, this is all, you know, symptomatic of immaturity, traits of young, of young children. And so that's why Paul points this out to them in verse 20. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. The term children here, it speaks of, uh, describes very young infants. That's, that's how you would interpret that term. He says, don't be like thoughtless, self-centered children who haven't learned how to put themselves in the place of others. Don't be like young children who insist on having all eyes on them every waking moment. Don't be like those who pridefully think they have it all figured out. Children love anything that is shiny, anything that moves, anything that is um, uh, makes noise, right? Uh, and honestly, many modern Christians have the same mindset spiritually. 
They'd much rather have their emotions stirred than their minds challenged. They would much rather have, be made to feel than to think. They would much rather go on pridefully believing they've got it all figured out when they rather need to humble themselves and acknowledge there is more for me to learn in the school of Christ. It is symptomatic of a lack of spiritual maturity. And there was in Corinth a, an infantile need for self-fulfillment. There was an infantile need for self-advertisement and self-validation when the church came together. And that was evidenced by everyone speaking over one another, babbling in tongues, counterfeit tongues that no one understood and no one could interpret. They were doing all of this at the expense of a loving concern for others. Their fellow believers in the church, and even those who are outside the church who needed to hear the gospel. And Paul says, don't continue, in verse 20, don't continue to think, and what's implied in that is don't continue to act like children born yesterday. But rather, when it comes to evil, yes, reject every wicked scheme, anything that would possibly um, you know, serve, be self-serving and tempt you to, to turn inward. He says, but in your thinking, be, um, in your judgment, your understanding, he says, be mature adults. That's what the term at the end of verse 20 is talking about. Take adult responsibility for others instead of being a slave, a slave to self. These are the traits of young people, and this is a call to maturity. So uh, we're framing it in the negative here, but the, the first part of our outline in verse 20 just points out the prohibition against immaturity. But that gives way in verse 21 and 22 to the, secondly, the principle that Paul lays out from the law of God. And really, we're just talking about the Old Testament. Paul loves to use the Old Testament scriptures to illustrate and teach his new covenant people, which helps us understand that all of God's word is, is um, necessary, as we learned this morning. It's sufficient and profitable for us to know and understand. The Old Testament is not like, oh, we just forget about that. No, no. Paul is always quoting the Old Testament to instruct the new covenant believers in his church. He wants us to understand that God is who he is and that he is the same yesterday, you know, today, and forever. But he also wants us to know that fallen humanity is what it is, and we, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we come to the scriptures, and we look at the Old Testament scriptures, and we see ourselves, and we see the same proclivities and so forth, and so we have much to learn from the Old Testament. And that's what we see Paul uh, doing here in verses 21 and 22. And to illustrate what he, this point he wants to make, he references the words of Isaiah, in chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, and he applies that to the situation in Corinth. And so um, what are, he kind of lays out the principle in verse 21, and then he, he, in a preliminary way, applies the principle in, verses, in verse 22. But he says this in verse 21, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. You say, wait a second, what is, what is Paul's point here? And why is he quoting Isaiah to make whatever point he's trying to make? Why does he choose this text to reinforce his 
what he's teaching us in this chapter about the superiority of prophecy over the gift of languages. Well, to understand why Paul quotes Isaiah, we need to go back to Isaiah, right? Because what it meant then is going to give us an understanding of how, what it means now and how it applies. So I invite you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 28 for just a few minutes here so we can pick up the context, because I'm sure most of you are not as familiar with the context of these verses in chapter 28. Isaiah 28 and and really the whole beginning part of the chapter is, is applies. As Isaiah is preaching and teaching the word in Judah, he found himself at that time running up against a number of leaders, religious leaders in Israel, priests and those who identified themselves as prophets in Jerusalem. And these religious leaders who were supposed to be leading Israel, who were supposed to be uh, teaching the people and setting a godly example were um, actually doing just the opposite. They were um, becoming uh, drunk with wine and they were woefully self-indulgent in these pagan festivities and it was muddling their speech and it was clouding their judgment. If you look at chapter 28 verse 1, he says, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, which is just another word to describe Israel, and to the fading fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. And verse 7, he says, and these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. The, the, the picture that Isaiah paints here is not a pretty one. The, this is a group of people who are lost in their revelry, in their drunkenness, in their stupor, in, in their, their own filth. The picture here is one of uncleanness at the highest level. And as a result of that, Isaiah is calling out their selfish indulgence, these priests and their prophets, and, he's be, and, and he is pointing out to them that, that God is going to judge them. There is divine action that will fall upon them. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He is casted down to the earth with his hand. He's using these powerful imagery of the storm God coming and judging Israel. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. And he goes on and on here to describe how God will judge them. And they aren't really interested in hearing what he has to say. As is so often, when leaders are lost in wickedness, they don't generally take well to criticism And so what we see them doing in verse 9 is responding to Isaiah. And he says, uh, they, the priests and these prophets who have been indicted by Isaiah, are responding to him in verse 9. And they say, to whom shall he, meaning Isaiah, teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? These just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? He's basically saying, in other words... Who could this Isaiah character ever teach? Babies? Why, why, why would we ever listen to him? And why do they think that? Well, verse 10 tells us, For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. 
their, their reasoning for dismissing him, for belittling him, for mocking him, was because, because he thought, they thought he was treating them like children, like babies. They were sneering at him, calling his prophetic words simple and childish. I mean, does, does this guy for real, does, does he think we're babies, that he has to repeat the same stuff over and over and over again, one little bit at a time? That's, that's the tone and tenor of verses 9 and 10. And so they're mocking Isaiah, they're sneering at his prophetic utterances, but Isaiah has the last word, God has the last word, but Isaiah has it in verses 11 and 12. And this is Isaiah speaking for God. And indeed, he, God, will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to me, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. This is God offering them peace and, pro- and provision. And if they would return to covenant faithfulness, and he says, but they would not listen to me. The reference is clear. We know historically Isaiah is prophesying about the future that there was going to come a harsh-sounding language, the Assyrian language that was going to fall on Judah, and they would be hearing that language in the not-too-distant future. Soon there would be a foreign nation whose language they did not understand who would descend on them and teach all these selfish, mocking prophets a lesson. And so... With that as a backdrop, the the context now start to overlap a little bit. We start to understand why would Paul reference this verse, these verses. Those who were self-focused, those who were self-indulgent in Isaiah's day, those who were wise, claimed to be wise, and gifted in their own eyes, they dismissed the plain prophetic word of Isaiah. They rejected it, and they thought his message was childish, when in reality, it was Israel who was thinking and acting in a childish manner. And it's interesting, I think it's interesting, that how divine judgment so often falls on rebels in such a way that God simply just permits them to reap what they've sown. That's exactly what he did. It's like a toddler who doesn't want to be held anymore when you pick them up. And they start squirming, and they start writhing around, um, and they'll push your face away when they're in a, in a mood. You know, it's like if I let go of you right now, you do understand you're going to fall on your noggin or break a limb. You're, like, we're going to end up in the ER if you keep doing this. But, you know, sometimes God lets his people do that. He lets his people do that. You know, keep thrashing around. See what happens. Well, Judah did keep thrashing around and pushing God away, and their disdain of the clear prophetic word was about to come home to roost with a vengeance. They wanted something other than the plain prophetic word. So God says, okay, you can have it. I'll give you something else besides the plain prophetic word. But it would be an act of judgment. It was to be an act of judgment because it placed many of God's own people for whom the priests and the prophets had a responsibility to care for in the position of being aliens and outsiders as they were captive in Assyria and in Babylon. And here's the principle. Here's the principle that Paul's getting at. When you hear strange languages that are unintelligible, when you're surrounded by tongues that no one understands, that is indicative of God's judgment. 
That is, a, that is indicative of God's judgment on a people. And just think about that. Historically, look at the, at the Old Testament. What happened to the Tower of Babel? The people, an immature, prideful people, thought that they could make a name for themselves, and so what does God do? He confused their languages so that no one could communicate with one another, and they were scattered, he says, Genesis 11, across the face of the whole earth. Or when Moses gave the law, and at the end of Deuteronomy, as they're ready to go into the land, there's these blessings and cursings, and one of the cursings is in Deuteronomy 28. God promises Israel, if they are unfaithful to the covenant, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. That is indicative of God's chastening, God's judgment when you don't understand the language. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says in Jeremiah 5, in verse 15, he, of course, coming later, says, Behold, speaking to Israel, I am bringing, and he's speaking for God, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. That is always indicative of God's judgment, Luke 21, even our Lord brought this to the attention of Israel. He says, speaking of those future events that were about to unfold, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And verse, uh, Luke 21, verse 24 says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. Of course, what's implied in that is that they won't understand the language, which is exactly what happened in 70 A.D., so whether it was Moses, whether it's the prophets, whether it's our Lord, the principle is when you hear strange languages that are not understandable, that is indicative of God's judgment, not God's blessing on a people. So very important. And so that is the context in why Paul quotes that verse, and then he makes the application in verse 22. With that principle laid out, he says, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is, a sign, is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Here Paul invites the Corinthians to consider the effect of tongues and the effect of prophecy. It has two different, very different effects. In other words, what signal does each one convey? That's important because as Christians, our, if we're to love one another, we are most, we said that is to, a concern for others, their well-being, their benefit, their edification. So pursuing love and eagerly uh, desiring spiritual gifts necessitates staking, to, staking uh, taking stock, staking talk, taking stock. It necessitates taking stock of the effect that those gifts have. What, what will be the intended outcome of those things? And at the conclusion, Paul draws here in verse 22 that tongues are a sign. But as we saw from the Old Testament and the quotation that he pulls up, they're a sign or a signal of God's displeasure. It's a sign of God's judgment. Just as the immature, self-indulgent, unbelieving Israelites were surrounded by foreign tongues that came from Assyria and Babylon it was a sign to them that they had been placed under God's judgment 
for their rejection of the prophetic word. That was true in Israel. But prophecy clearly proclaimed and embraced is just the opposite. Prophecy is a signal of God's presence. It is a signal of God's blessing on a people. And we know this just uh, by implication. In, in uh, 1 Samuel 3, in verse 1, the, this is during the time of the judges, which is not really a high point in Israel's history. It says that the word of the Lord was, what, rare in those days. And the visions were infrequent. In other words, because of their rebellion and because of God's judgment, God withheld his prophetic word. But by implication, when God's word comes to his people, it is a demonstration of his grace. It is a demonstration of his favor. And so Paul says, don't make the same mistake that they did. Don't do what they did. They were immature, Israel was. They mocked God's prophetic word. They thought it was too simplistic. They turned their backs to God's truth to pursue a course of self-indulgence, self-promotion. Consequently, they and all who followed them were judged. Paul says, why then are you taking a sign of God's judgment and making that the focal point of your worship service? When, when the church gathers, it does so as the new covenant people of God. We are those Jew and Gentile, one new man, those who have been born again through faith in Christ's work on the cross. Why would you make a sign of God's judgment the centerpiece of the community when it worships? I mean, it, all that does is stir up a sense of wrongness, a sense of strangeness that befits, it's more in line with what an unbeliever would think. It just doesn't fit. It's like wearing a snowsuit and a cap in the summer. You just don't do it. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. Or wearing a tank top and shorts in the dead of winter. It's not appropriate. Believers should feel at home in corporate worship. They should feel a, 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 a sense of belonging and understanding. They should understand and grasp what's being said and what's being done. Speaking in tongues doesn't open the door to the mysteries of the gospel for an unbeliever or a seeker or a young Christian. It slams that gate shut. It cuts them off. Tongues without interpretation are a sign to unbelievers of God's judgment and displeasure. But on the other hand, prophecy... Prophecy, he says, ushers in God's people to the very presence of God himself through his spirit and through his word. It engages the mind, and we are able to worship. So this is the principle that he lays out here. And so as we turn then and look at verses 23 to 25, Paul zooms in on this principle that he's just made clear in 21 and 22, and he appoints applies it to the church. And he does that in two steps. First, by we see the poverty of tongues. So this is kind of our third point in our outline, the poverty of tongues in verse 23, and then we'll see the power of the word understood in verses 24 and 25. This, he, 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 takes, he shows the effect that tongues will have to the unbeliever and the uninitiated when it comes to tongues, and then, of course, what it happens when it comes to when it comes to uh, the prophetic word. We see first the poverty of tongues in verse 23. Quickly, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues 
and an ungifted man or unbeliever enter, enters, will they not say that you are mad? Paul imagines, just kind of hypothetically, that the whole church comes together for worship and everyone speaking in tongues. And of course, it doesn't necessarily mean every single person. He's speaking, he's painting with an impressionistic brush here. He just means most everybody, right? When we say everybody was laughing, we don't mean every single person was laughing. But imagine they, they all come together and there's a bunch of people speaking in tongues. This would be a dream come true for the Corinthians because they held it as the most important gift. He says, if there happens to come into that environment, a seeker, that's kind of the term there. It says, un, um, every translation is different. It has ungifted men in the NAS. Uh, this could be, we said, somebody who is a new believer and doesn't really know a lot, or maybe hasn't been baptized and added to the church. Could be someone who's just seeking God, doesn't really understand the gospel yet. It's hard to know, um, because of course he puts them alongside unbelievers, of course. But the point is that these are people that are not familiar with the church gathering. The effect of a massive display of tongues with everyone speaking in gibberish, or even real discernible languages, maybe this is the real gift of tongues, the effect of that on inquirers, new believers, will be to reinforce for them that Christians are insane. That's literally the language that he uses here. The term mad carries this double meaning of an emotional lack of self-control um, expressed as raving and an unattractive, even frightening loss of sanity. He says, they will think y'all are stark raving lunatics. And I've told this story before, but the first time my dad ever set foot in a non-Roman Catholic church service was his first opportunity to do that was when he went off base during basic training, whenever they allowed them to do that. His bunkmate was a believer and invited him to church. My dad was saved um, by the witnessing of his employer. He worked for the gas station. The owner of the gas station was a, just a, um, a faithful follower of Christ, opened up the, gospel, uh, the word of God, explained the gospel to my dad, and he was just kind of discipling my dad in the weekend, but his father would not let him go to church because he was Catholic, and that's what we do. So my dad never got to go to a Protestant worship service ever until he was in the army. And so that first uh, couple of weeks, he befriended his bunkmate, and the guy says, hey, would you want to go to church? And he says, sure. He says, I have a church. He lived nearby or something. He says, I know of a church not too far away from here. We'll go. So they had their time to go, and it was a Pentecostal service. And my dad said it was the craziest thing he had ever seen. People yelling, people running around, people talking in nonsense languages. I mean, it was chaotic. And I thank God that my dad was a true believer because it didn't trip him up. It didn't trip him up. He just thought it was really unusual. But that was his first impression of a non-Catholic worship service. He thought they were insane. And so it just reinforces Paul's point here. They're out of their minds. If someone comes in, they'll think you're crazy. So we see here there's an there's a inescapable poverty to tongues for building up the body of Christ. If the dominant impression that an outsider gets when they come into the church worship service is that these folks are even crazier than I thought before I came in here, that's something we need to steer away from. That's something we need to avoid at all costs. 
the preaching of the gospel is already a stumbling block. It's already offensive to the unbeliever. We don't need to throw a self-own on top of that to make it even harder for them to get to the true knowledge of Christ. Well, what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is laid out in verses 24 to 25, and that is the power of the word, the prophetic word, understood. There is a poverty to tongues, but Paul's going to point out there is a power to the word clearly explained. The effect of the clear proclamation of the word on an outsider, an unbeliever, is so different so as to be vastly superior. In 24, he says, but if all prophesy, prophesy, excuse me, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Prophecy communicates a divine message, and this divine message, clearly communicated for all to comprehend, has powerful effects. What are some of those effects? Well, he lays out four here. First, it convicts of sin. The term means, uh, in the original language, means to bring to light, to expose. In the New Testament, it denotes both conviction of sin and a conviction of truth, a clarity to truth. We, we see it repeatedly used in John's gospel where the agent who brings this conviction is either our Lord as he's preaching and teaching or God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, calls out the religious leaders in John 8, verse 46. He says, which, six, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Of course, no one could convict him of sin. He, there was no sin to expose in his life because he was sinless. Or John 16, in verse 8, he says, He, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He brings conviction through the prophetic word. And as we aim at the mind with the clear proclamation of the word, both believer and unbeliever are convicted by their sin. When Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned, for example, and fall short of the glory of God. Or that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom Paul, the mighty apostle Paul, considers himself among the chief of sinners. Or when Jesus speaks to the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount and points out that he's, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, when those words are preached, when they are explicated, we're convicted. We're convicted of our sin. The light of God's word exposes the true condition of our souls, and there is nowhere to run and hide. We're also called to account. Secondly, the second effect of the prophetic word is it calls sinners to account. This is a very uh, legal terminology. It, the term is used in a court setting where an accusation is made and being adjudicated. The prophetic word brings home the truth of the gospel that God is infinitely holy and that we are not. We are not. There is no one, as we learn today, holy like the Lord. And he cannot abide unholiness in his glorious presence for even a moment, which means every one of us is guilty. Every one of us stands condemned and under sentence of judgment. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, yes, but even eternal death. Conscious, literal death 
that never ends in a place called hell that the Bible speaks of candidly in the New Testament. The clear prophetic word will have the effect of reminding all who hear it that we will all be held accountable for our failure to live up to that standard that is God's righteousness, which we cannot do. There is none righteous, not even one. We understand that. The word of God, the prophetic word, has an effect, thirdly, to expose the heart. Look at the beginning of verse 25. The secrets, if a man comes in in that context and the prophecy is being spoken, the, the, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. See, not, it's not just our outward actions fall short, but our thoughts, our motivations, our desires are corrupted by sin too. We understand that. The heart is desperately sick. Who can even know it, Jeremiah writes? David says we were brought forth in iniquity and our corruption by sin it begins at the moment of our conception. We are all, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. The picture of the prophetic word paint that, that's painted here is not a pretty one. It brings conviction. It calls us to account. It, it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our heart and leaves us condemned under judgment. But it also tells us this. That though we are under a sentence of judgment, there was one who came from heaven to earth some 2,000 years ago being truly God and being truly man. And in this God-man, there was no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And he walked in perfect obedience to his heavenly father every moment of his earthly life. And at the appointed time, he gave up his life as a sacrifice upon a cross to make a final and full atonement for sin. He went to the cross so that those who would turn from their rebellion, those who would turn from their sin and look to him for forgiveness and cleansing would have their sins washed away. They would have their sins forgiven and they would receive the promise of life eternal. His name is Jesus Christ and he rose from the grave on the third day and he is alive today. And he calls all men everywhere to repent and believe on him because salvation is found in no one else. To receive his salvation as a glorious gift is by his grace and his mercy and it is to cease from our hopeless efforts to earn our favor by our works, his favor by our own works. And as you receive and rest in that salvation, Accomplished through Christ, he gives you a new mind, he gives you a new heart, he gives you new affections and a new will that longs to obey him. Not to earn his favor, but because his favor already rests upon you. I mean, this is what the word of God does. And when that happens in the corporate gathering, verse 25 says, you will fall on your face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. When the prophetic word is preached, clearly, simply, it convicts, it calls to account, it exposes the heart, and lastly, fourthly, it converts and leads to worship. To fall on one's face was in the Old Testament in the first century a sign of devotion before a high-ranking individual or even God himself has the idea of approaching God with a petition we humble ourselves and would physically throw ourselves to the ground. That's the picture here. 
The preaching of the word turns sinners into saints. It turns worthless men and women into worshipers of the true and living God. Now ask yourself, how would you have comprehended any of that message that I've been carrying on about this whole time if I hadn't made that message clear in the words that you understood? How, how would you have understood that? How, how would you have um, grasped that? You couldn't have. It would be impossible. It would be impossible, and that is the power of the prophetic word understood. And that is Paul's point. When God's word is preached, the God is active and present in a material way, and he, convince, he convinces and convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, but he also draws forth authentic worship in the heart. This is the power of the word understood. So the priority, if it's not obvious, <laughs> is prophecy. Prophetic word has to be uppermost. That's why Paul says at the beginning, I want you to prophecy above all else, especially because prophecies speak to men. One who prophecies speaks to men for edification, verse 3, exhortation and consolation. Its effect, its effect when understood by the Spirit's power isn't speaking in ecstatic languages that no one understands, but in conviction of sin, in calling sinners to account, in exposing the thoughts and intentions of their heart, and bringing about authentic, humble worshipers who glory in the Savior. So, if love is our primary concern, and it must be, because all that we are to do is to be done in love, the prophetic word is greater than tongues because it builds others up and it draws sinners to faith. Tongues causes the unbeliever and the seeker and the uninitiated to say we're stark raving lunatics. Prophecy causes the unbeliever, the uninitiated, the seeker, the unbeliever, causes us to say that God is truly, that's what the word is at the end of verse 25, truly among you. There can be no other choice. And that is why we preach the word and teach the word the way we do. This is, we're getting an edu a first-rate education in edification. This is how it works. And next week, we'll see in verses 26 to 40, Paul explain what that must look like. We'll see a procedure, if you will, for worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's insight into this word, that he would dig all the way back into the Old Testament scriptures and sort out this very important passage that helps us understand what, what we need to make the priority. We pray that our church will be marked out by a clear proclamation of that prophetic word. We have that word contained in the pages of Holy Scripture now. We don't need to go looking for it. We don't need some word from the Lord to drop from on high. We have it. And because we have that word, we we meditate on it, we study it, we preach it, we sing it, and we share it with all who will listen. Where we pray that you would use that word to draw sinners to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, 
or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.